You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. This is a woman's decision. As for men, they can live and become slaves. You've burned three Roman cities to the ground, yet still it is not enough. Three Roman cities up in flames, collaborators entombed in ash with the Roman oppressors, three beacons you've lit to the tribes, a message of flames and rebirth. You've tried to get their attention, to show them what you've learned the hard way, that there is no peace with Rome. There is no such thing as Roman justice. There is only the point of a sword. And the only way to live with Romans is to kill them all or die in the process. You've sent your messages. You've burned your litany into the earth. And yet still, the tribes do not rise up. The collaborators do not shake off their shackles. What will it take for them all to wake up? Beside you, in your tent, the fire burns. Your daughters sleep nearby, heavy with slumber and the weight of all they've endured. You've sent away your generals and chieftains. You've done as much planning as you could. You looked at the ground ahead, at the lay of the land, and seen there is only one way out. That way is through. Assuming you survive the battle tomorrow, what next? You've given your people back their pride and robbed your enemies of the land they took. But if that was enough, if three Roman cities was enough to bring back what was lost, to drive the Romans away from your shores and restore this land to the people it belongs to, then the Romans would be gone by now. But it's not enough. To do that, the entire island must rise up along with you. They haven't. Only the Trinovantes and a handful of others have flocked to your banner. 
The rest of them cower in their cities and behind their strong Roman protectors, even when you've shown them that neither Romans nor walls will protect them. The truth is, you can't drive the Romans out all by yourself. For this to work, you must swell your numbers. You've heard that in Mona, rebellion still rages. You've thought about joining your forces to theirs. The journey would be perilous, but you'd do it over 200 miles through Roman-controlled territory, moving fast, lighting fires along the way. That would get everyone's attention. But it would be no easy journey, and your supply chain weighs you down. The long line of women and children, non-combatants and the vulnerable, people who have nowhere else to go. You cannot just abandon them. You stare into the fire. You are so tired. Your daughters dream. They're breathing even and deep. What you don't tell them, any of them, is you'd stop this if you could. You would go back to your lands and sue for peace, even if it cost you your life. But you no longer believe in Roman peace. You've seen what peace is with the Romans. An illusion. A silent war of attrition where every day, every week, every month, and every year, they take more and more from your people. And they do it without swords, without war chariots. They do it with taxes, with roads, with trade. And when that fails, they do it with language. Once your own Britonic tongue sang across the land. Now, everywhere, there is Latin. In a few short years, your people have lost so much, so much of it given willingly, and still, they do not rise up. They do not see there will never be peace until the Romans are gone. You close your eyes and whisper a prayer to Andraste, to guide your army in battle tomorrow, to watch over your warriors, to give them strength for the long road ahead of you, the endless march down the ancient road to liberate your land. Andraste, you whisper, walk with me on the battlefield tomorrow. Deliver death to the Romans. Set our lands free from this hated Roman plague. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. And we're back! So, we're at the end of our Boudicca arc, and it's gonna get serious. (laughs) It has not been serious yet. It's been a light romp, really. (laughs) I'm just so excited for next season where I've been promised that at least one of the episodes I'm doing probably doesn't have anything to do with genocide. We say that now that it's going to be a light genocide-free arc, but we're not 100% sure because you never know where these things take you. So when we left off last week, Boudicca and her army had sacked the capital of Roman Britain, a town called Camelodunum. And then her army set their sights further inland on Londinium, another hated Roman town and a major center of Roman commerce. The people of Camelodunum had found out the hard way that Rome's promises of protection weren't enough to save them from Boudicca's rampaging army. When they begged for help, they were given 200 extra soldiers, and their procurator skipped the province. He was a guy called uh, Decianus Catus, the 10th Catus of his name. Tenth of his name. (laughs) (laughs) So needless to say, things did not go well for the people living in Camelodunum. That was 200 extra soldiers to face, what was it, an army of 120,000 people? Something like that. I mean, it's very difficult to know all these ancient world numbers are incredibly fuzzy, but let's say it's 100,000 people. 
So those who were able to flee ahead of Boudicca's slow-moving army of doom did. But those who couldn't flee were left to the mercy of Boudicca. And Boudicca and her army had no mercy. They burned Camilla Dunham to the ground, unleashing a cleansing fire that was seared into the British landscape and can still be found today. It's called the Boudicca Burn Lair. Sometimes they call it the Boudicca Event Horizon, which just fucking kills me. It kills me. And now I'm dead. I know. When I started to do the research for this, I was like madly texting Jenny at like midnight my time. I tend to do a lot of work between midnight and 2 a.m. I'm a very much a night owl. But anyway, I was texting her and I was like, there is a Boudicca burn layer. It's in the archaeology. There is literally a layer burned into the ground of her destruction. So what that basically means is that everywhere archaeologists dig in this area, at a certain point when they dig down, there's a layer of ash that's a certain distinctive color. I think it's pink or red. It's a pinky red. I mean, it changes based on the intensity, essentially, of the heat and I guess probably other environmental factors, but it's like a pinky red layer. Yeah, so you can see it in the soil when you dig down a certain amount everywhere in London, like around old Londinium area. I mean, a lot of that has been dug up because London's so developed, but you can still find bits of it. A lot more of it they find in places like Colchester, where Camilla Dunham was, and across the countryside. But they find it all over, and it's one of those markers that archaeologists use to actually, like, date history. And a lot of it isn't this straightforward. Like, having done a lot of this research, I found that archaeologists today, at least, are really reluctant to assign when it looks like something has been burned in the archaeological record. They're really reluctant to connect that to battles that you find in the historical record because a lot of that has been done kind of erroneously. So archaeologists are really conservative about doing that today. But with this particular layer, there's absolutely no ambiguity. Like you can't say, oh, it must have been just somebody's house burned down or an accidental fire, or maybe it wasn't from this time, or, you know, we're misconstruing things somehow. Like there's no way to misconstrue this. It's very obvious. But that being said, this layer, this burn layer does not tell us exactly where battles were fought. It tells us where cities were. But as we're going to talk about, archaeologists don't exactly know where Boudicca's battles were fought. Right. Okay, so we were just talking about how Boudicca's army burned Camelodunum to the ground, leaving the burn layer. And those citizens of Camelodunum who survived the fire were put to death. Maybe it's a little bit unclear. Then, or maybe beforehand, the timeline is a little fuzzy, Boudicca's army met up with a whole legion sent to reinforce Camelodunum and wipe them out. So all of this went down in the east of the country. And that's what we just covered in the previous episode. But afterward, Boudicca and her army turned their eyes westward. Boudicca's army, according to Cassius Dio, had now grown to an unwieldy 230,000 people, including both warriors and their families. This was a full-on tribal affair with an epic baggage train. It was a slow-moving tsunami. Up until now, Boudicca's army had gotten lucky, you could say. The Roman commanders it had met had been largely incompetent, and they hadn't really met with much resistance. The bulk of the experienced Roman forces were in the west of the United Kingdom, dealing with the rebellion of the Druids in Anglesey, Wales, which we have an entire episode on. It's called The Druids' Last Stand. But now, Boudicca and her army were proving to be an even bigger threat to the Roman colonial machine than the uprising in Wales. Her army was like a tide— quickly overwhelming all the defenses it met. After Camelodunum, and after Boudicca's army wiped out an entire legion sent to defend Camelodunum, the Romans decided it was time to deal with the warrior queen 
before the entire province devolved into outright rebellion. So this is where Suetonius Paulinus comes into the story. He just swaggers into the story like a swaggering. Jen really wants me to say that Paulinus was like a honey badger. So here you go, kids. Paulinus was like a honey badger. He gave no fucks. I'm really dating myself with this honey badger thing, but... There's no gun to your head. So Paulinus was the governor of Britain, and he had quickly become seasoned in putting down rebellions. At the moment, he was off in Wales putting down the Druid uprising. And when he heard about the fall of Camelodunum and the failure of the legions sent out to oppose Boudicca's army to contain the rebel forces, he realized he could no longer take the stability of the East for granted. There wasn't a moment to spare. If Paulinus wanted to keep the British province from falling into chaos and keep himself from attracting the ire of the notoriously hair-trigger Emperor Nero Neckbeard, he had to get the situation under control fast. So Paulinus took a skeleton crew of cavalry and rushed from Wales all the way back to Londinium, intending to reach the city before Boudicca's slow-moving army and assess the situation. At this point, Londinium wasn't a major military town. Quite the opposite. It wasn't the capital of Roman Britain. It wasn't a home to a military fort like Camelodunum, but it was still incredibly significant to the Roman occupation of Britain. Londinium, located right on the Thames, was a trade hub and an important point for receiving critical supplies. It was vital to the Romans as they moved their supply chains across Britain to keep their armies fed. As Vanessa Collingridge explains in her book Boudicca, Londinium was a symbol of everything Roman and hated by Boudicca and her army. Quote, Unlike Camelodunum, Londinium was purely a trading town. It had no major fort, no colony of veterans, no real military status at all, though it does seem to have already positioned itself as a center of administration, as the procurator Catus Decianus appears to have based himself there, albeit unofficially, before his rapid departure to Gaul. It was also from here that Decianus was seemingly able to drum up the 200 poorly armed troops to send to Camelodunum's aid. But despite its lack of imperial patronage, Londinium was truly and undoubtedly a Roman creation, and that meant it had immense symbolism as a target. So Londinium was a cosmopolitan town and a symbol of everything Boudicca and her people had come to despise. Sacking Londinium was just as important to Boudicca as sacking Camelodunum. This was a symbol of the colonial oppressor and it had to go. There were no two ways about it. In order for Boudicca and her army to take back their country, Londinium had to fall. Paulinus threw together his cavalry, left the smoking battlefield of Anglesey, galloped at breakneck speed the 281 miles from Anglesey to Londinium. I assume he was moving super fast. I don't know what road he took. It's a little bit of a mystery. Boats. I think he took Watling Street, actually. It did go that far, and it was an old road that the Romans had paved some of, and it was pre-existing, and if they hadn't gotten around to building other roads back then, that one was definitely available and there. So I think it's possible. Do I know that for sure? Absolutely not. No, I mean, that's one of the things. They haven't actually been able to retrace with any, like, conclusive evidence what route he would have taken to get back. I kind of love the idea that maybe he, like, used the rivers to get back down to the Thames. I don't know. Like, he would have to take the sea, and that is a lot less dependable and more dangerous. Yeah, maybe faster. I don't know. I guess if the winds are right and you don't hit a storm and, you know, the currents are okay and your boats don't get battered against the rocks because the tides around the island of Britain were extremely scary and undependable and the largest tides anyone had ever seen in the Mediterranean world. 
this is all true. I'm still going with boats. Jen is going with her completely spurious theory in the face of all evidence. <laughs> but mine is also equally unfounded. Does this surprise anyone? Team Loch Ness Monster? No. She's always going to be on Team Loch Ness Monster. There's nothing you could do about it. Always. So anyway, how Paulinus got back to Londinium and how long it took is up for debate as we don't know which route he took. Although, as you can see, Jen and I both have our extremely strong, extremely unfounded fictional theories. But Paulinus most likely took a tiny force of cavalry that could move fast because it was tiny and raced back east as quickly as possible. He wasn't worried about meeting up with any opposing forces because everyone in the West had been subdued or they were allied tribes like Cardamandua's people, at least that's what he's assuming, and all the other rebelling tribes were far off in the southwest in Exeter and Cornwall. In other words, any native Britons he met were likely to be pro-Roman, he thought. And this was important. Paulinus hadn't quite finished his subjugation of the Druids in Wales. The war was still in its closing days, and most of his soldiers were tied up fighting that war. Paulinus couldn't just call all his soldiers to the east of the country right away to respond to this Boudicca situation. Not yet. Not unless the situation really was that dire and there were no other options. And especially not if calling over those soldiers would mean losing wars in both west and east. Paulinus had to be very sure of his next move. Because one wrong move and the entire colony could have come crashing down around his head. And then he would likely lose his head when Nero found out. And the ancient sources tell us that at this point in time, Nero was very close to just saying goodbye to the whole occupation because of all the stuff that was going on here. Paulinus needed to see the situation on the ground in the east of Britain. He had to assess what had gone down in Camelodunum and figure out what they were facing. And then meet with the people of Londinium and determine what the next steps were for their future. Londinium was important to the Roman Empire for trade, supplies, and, as we've mentioned, as a symbol. But it wasn't an easy town to hold. It wasn't defended with any earthworks. The famous Roman wall that you can still see pieces of in modern London wasn't built yet. It wouldn't be built until 200 AD, roughly 140 years later. They just took a long time to build a wall after Boudicca. They just didn't think it was important, I guess. Yeah, it's like they really didn't learn their lesson. <laughs> so in Boudicca's time, Londinium was a fairly new town. While it's difficult to say exactly when it was founded, the earliest archaeological evidence we have dates from around 47 to 50 AD, only about a decade after the beginning of Claudius's invasion. By Boudicca's time, the town was only about 10 years old, a combination of Roman buildings and Celtic roundhouses built at the narrowest point in the Thames, an ideal place to build a Roman bridge. The town was very much a mixture of native British buildings and roundhouses, as well as new gridded roads filled with Roman shops selling things like blown glass, olives, and wine. Archaeology suggests that there was a distinct gridded Roman area that was separate and an area of town that was more haphazardly laid out and more Celtic. Sadly, neither the Roman nor the British part of town included defensive works. There was no moat, there was no earthen ramparts or ditches or walls, and there was no time to create these defenses. Boudicca's army was on their way, and the nearest Roman military town, Camelodunum, had fallen. Any reinforcements Paulinus might have been able to gather from there were gone. To defend the town, he'd have to call back his entire force from Anglesey, and they'd need to build out all these defenses that the city didn't have, which required time. They didn't have time for that. Boudicca's army might be slow-moving, but it wasn't that slow-moving. So, Paulinus took one look at the town and made a call. It couldn't be defended. He was going to abandon it to Boudicca. 
Paulinus told the people of Londinium that he couldn't protect them. He advised that the inhabitants flee to friendly tribal communities and go as far west as possible before Boudicca and her army arrived. And with that advice, Paulinus noped right out of Londinium. Instead of defending the town, he opted to find a suitable place to meet Boudicca's army in the field and destroy them. But to do that, he needed more time, and most importantly, a different, more defensible location. Tacitus tells us about the gamble Paulinus made. Quote, Paulinus, with remarkable firmness, marched straight through the midst of the enemy upon London, which, though not distinguished by the title of colony, was nonetheless a busy center, chiefly through its crowd of merchants and stores. Once there, he felt some doubt whether to choose it as a base of operations, but on considering the fewness of his troops and the sufficiently severe lesson which had been read to the rashness of Petilius, and Petilius was the guy who had led that legion that Boudicca had wiped out, he determined to save the country as a whole at the cost of one town. The laments and tears of the inhabitants as they implored his protection found him inflexible. He gave the signal for departure and embodied in the column those capable of accompanying the march, all who had been detained by the disabilities of sex, by the lassitude of age, or by local attachment, fell into the hands of the enemy. Okay, so I have some thoughts on this. Tacitus tells us that Paulinus wanted to win the war at the cost of one city, and to do that, he had to leave Lindinium to its fate. The people who were able to follow him followed. Maybe he escorted them to safer harbors in the West. Maybe they just followed the Roman soldiers hoping for their protection. I have no idea. But those who weren't able to follow, those who couldn't flee or take refuge with friendly tribes, and those who were too attached to the city to leave were left to Boudicca's mercy. Notice how he says the disabilities of sex, as if if you're a woman, that's just a disability. The disabilities of sex here might also mean pregnant women who were less able to travel or women who were nursing or had small children. Like that might also be a disability of sex, which I'm not saying is okay. I'm just saying when you think about it, that might also be what he's saying. So those who couldn't leave for whatever reason were left to Boudicca's mercy. And this mercy wasn't likely to be very merciful. Boudicca and her army were out there right now, burning to the ground any city that was Roman-aligned, sparing no British people who had chosen to live with the Romans. They raided, pillaged, and murdered anyone they came across, and they were not asking questions about the Romano-Britons' nuanced and complicated reasons for aligning themselves with the Romans. They did not care. You were with them, or you were against them. If you're going to castigate Boudicca over this, this is not an unusual tactic. In the ancient world, we also saw Vercingetorix doing the same thing. I mean, we saw Spartacus doing this. The thing is, when you have an army that you've raised very quickly and you have to sort of get them to work together, you have to have one common enemy. And really, the common enemy here is the Romans and anyone who's aligned themselves with the Romans. There is no room for nuance. Yeah. And the other factor here is that if the goal is to get other people to rise up and join you, you have to make it look dangerous not to do that. And that was, you know, a good strategy, not a good strategy, because, you know, it sucks for the people on the pointy end of the strategy, but it's it might be an effective strategy if the Romans really are not protecting their British Roman-aligned people, which they're not. If the Romans aren't offering them that protection, they might make the tactical decision to align with Boudicca for their own protection. Absolutely. And we know in these particular towns, because they were so Roman-aligned, they were not going to come out and be like, we surrender the town to you, Boudicca. That was not going to happen for these people. But there were other towns around there that maybe could join with Boudicca's forces if the, as Jenny said, if the consequences for not joining her forces were great enough. That's right. And that's the other thing is that like each town she burned would send a message to other towns. I mean, we saw Julius Caesar do this in his subjugation of Gaul. Both sides were doing it in Gaul. 
which meant it was really, really hard to be a, just a normal person in Gaul during that time. Yeah. So Cassius Dio calls what happened at Londinium indescribable slaughter. But some people did have the chance to flee ahead of Boudicca's advancing army, and it's likely that they did. As at Camelodunum, we haven't found mass burials dating from around this time, and I don't think that there's a lot of bodies or bones found in the burn layer. So it's hard to say exactly how many people died. But it's likely Londonium was sacked and razed to the ground. I mean, I think it's like 100% certain. Yeah, exactly. Just as with Camelodunum, there's a Boudicca burn layer in the ruins of old Londinium, a Boudicca event horizon laid down in ash, scorched into the earth. It's harder to find and trace in London today because the city has been so built up since then. But it's still there, telling its story of fire and rage and destruction at the city's very foundations to anyone who will listen. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. After the sack of Londinium, Boudicca and her army turned their attention to a place called Verulamium. Verulamium was north of Londinium, around modern St. Albans. And the Trinovantes, Boudicca's major allies, had a particular reason to target this town. Verulamium was a wealthy Catavolani town that was allied with Rome. It had seen its wealth increase under the rulership of King Cunobolin of the Catavolani. So one of the interesting things that I found out is that when you see like that con, like C-U-N, con, or whatever it is. Cun? Cun? Cun, probably. Yeah, like, that actually means hound. In the old Britonic language? In the old Britonic language, yeah. Because that's where, like, Kukan gets it. It comes from there. It's like the hound of Ulster. It's that C-U-N generally means hound. And, like, hounds and wolves were really, like, sacred animals in the old Britonic culture. As well as, do you remember in the last episode we talked about hares? Hares were really fascinating in the old Britonic culture as well. Because hares, you know, you kind of think of them as, like, these creatures that are, like, frightened and timid. But actually, like, hares are really associated with the moon. And hares in the springtime when they're meeting, they do this thing called boxing where they like literally just get up on their hind legs and box each other. They do? They do. It's incredible. I'll find um, a picture for the show notes. And so like the ancient Britons observed this and they were really fascinated by the hares boxing. And it was kind of just like this interesting other side to the creature. Was the hare kind of a fierce animal to the ancient Britons as well? Somewhat. Yeah, it could be fierce. Because of that, it was like a interesting kind of unsuspecting mythical animal. They were these animals that like a lot of times in our modern gaze we see as timid, but they had this unexpected fierceness, this real defense of their territory and their land and, you know, their people. And I think it's really interesting to look at them through that light of how the hares would box, particularly during mating season in the spring. Yeah, they were really fierce little bunnies. Actually, hares are bigger than bunnies, but they were really fierce. I think hares and bunnies are technically not the same thing. They're not the same thing at all. <laughs> anyway, so 
King Cunobelin, the hound, had sided with the Romans, turns out. And in the opinion of Boudicca and her followers, that dude was dead to her. He had betrayed the native Britain. She doesn't care if he has hound in his name and that's a sacred, faithful animal. She doesn't give a fuck. That dude is toast. At this point in time, King Cunobelin was actually dead, so never mind. But his legacy lived on, and as we've said before, the Trinovantes and the Catavolani were mortal enemies ever since the Catavolani stole the town of Camulodunum right out from under the Trinovantes. That was their ancestral town. They were not happy. This was an epic feud, and the chance to sack this town, um, Verulamium, was one that could not be passed up. Honor was at stake. Honor was at stake. Thank you, Cucullin. Always happy to lend a hand when we need to talk about honor. Anytime it comes up, you'll just pop in and tell us honor was at stake. It's great. It's not Irish history, so it's not 100% his wheelhouse, but, you know. Um, Verulamium wasn't a town like Camelodunum or Lindinium. It was different. Vanessa Colingridge tells us about the history of Verulamium, and it is this history that made it so hated to Boudicca and her army. Quote! Perhaps because they were already such a progressive and relatively wealthy people, after Claudius's invasion of AD 43, the Catavolani population of Iron Age Verlamion, the original British name, rapidly took up new Roman styles and ideas, and soon they were calling the settlement by the Romanized name of Verulamium. Without any real imperial assistance, they now shook off their agricultural mantle and started building an unashamedly Romano-British town, the third largest in the province. The Romans were so impressed by the attitude and achievements of the population that they not only routed one of their most important roads, later called Watling Street, through Verulamium, the town also won the Roman privilege of being classed as a municipium, just one step down from a colonia like Camulodunum. As the only site awarded this honor, the impact was enormous. It meant that the local magistrates and their families could effectively become Roman citizens with all the privileges that citizenship afforded. These people of Verulamium, they were Catavolani. And the interesting thing about the Catavolani is that they were the original people who spearheaded the resistance to the Roman invasion way back when it started. They were the people that Caratacus led. So what this tells me is that pretty soon after they lost that battle at the Thames and Caratacus had to flee, they must have turned right around and allied with the Romans like immediately after that and then got to work oppressing themselves, basically. Like, that's essentially what this is saying. Yeah. Right! Like, all of a sudden, they were not rebelling against the Romans anymore. Oh, no. They were the Roman golden children. I think the reality is they kind of had to be if they wanted to, like, keep the rest of their tribal lands and from being put into slavery and sold off. Like, when you rebel against Rome, which we'll see the effects of at the end of this episode, when you rebel against Rome, the retribution is swift and it is brutal. So you have no choice but to get with the Roman program. And if you don't, then what's left of your people will be taken off the face of the earth. Yeah, so the Catavolani and Verulamium were basically just acting out of self-preservation here. I mean, I don't think it was just that, as it's characterized in the preceding paragraph, like, I don't think it was just that they were, quote-unquote, like, progressive. They were trying to save their own lives. They were trying to save their people. And I mean, I think as things moved on, obviously, they enjoyed the trappings of a nice life in a Romanized town would give you. I mean, the Romans had a lot of order. They brought a lot of cool things into Britain that weren't there before. But aqueducts, wine, olive oil. But there's always a cost. When you make a deal with the devil, there's always a cost. Hot running water. I mean, baths. 
Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm not siding with the oppressor here. Oh, shit. I'm not either. And I'm not saying that, like, it's worth giving up away your culture or your heritage. But I mean, baths, though. Do you like a bath? I know. And wine. Baths and wine. Am I that cheap? Fuck yeah, you are. I think I'm not cheap. <laughs> oh, man. You learn so many disturbing things about yourself when you start a podcast. Yeah, you learn what a horrible human being you are. The past three years have only taught me how horrible I am, and it's just getting worse. So anyway, Verulamium, once they were the Catavolani, were the um, famous ringleaders of the resistance against the Romans, and now they were the Roman golden children, with their British community leaders being showered with awards and wealth and Roman citizenship and privileges. It was a Romano-British town filled with collaborators, one of the worst symbols of Roman colonization. It was also the tribal seat of the sworn enemies of the Trinovantes, and the Catavolani had made a lot of money off their alliance with the Romans. So according to Boudicca's army, they had to go. As soon as they realized Boudicca's army was now headed towards them, the people of Verulamium knew that this was not a battle they could win. Honor might have been at stake, tribal feuds might have run deep, but Boudicca's army was just too big. And they'd seen how this went down at Londinium and Camelodunum. The Romans had abandoned both. There was no way they were going to protect Verulamium, golden child status or not. So the people of Verulamium gathered up their belongings and got the hell out of Dodge. But that didn't save them. Tacitus tells us what happened to the people of Verulamium, and it was grim. Quote, the natives, or Boudicca's army, with their delight in plunder and their distaste for exertion, left the forts and garrison posts on one side and made for the point which offered the richest material for the pillager and was unsafe for a defending force. It is established that close upon 70,000 Roman citizens and allies fell in the places mentioned, for the enemy neither took captive nor sold into captivity. There was none of the other commerce of war. He was hasty with slaughter and with a gibbet, arson and the cross, as though his day of reckoning must come, but only after he had snatched his revenge in the interval. Okay, can we pause for a second? Can we just pause before we even break this down and just stop? I just want to pull out his distaste for exertion and just start there. Yeah, with their delight in plunder and their distaste for exertion, because I'm sorry, but plundering does take a certain amount of exertion. Like 90% of plunder is showing up. Yeah, exactly. You can't plunder without breaking a sweat. Like if you can, I feel like you are living the dream. I'm not sure. <laughs> is that the dream? Are you? Are you really? Are, do you want to rein that back just a tad? <laughs> You're living the nightmare? I don't know. <laughs> Listen, bare minimum, you have to get off your couch if you want to participate in the plunder. Yeah, there's absolutely no way you can plunder without breaking a sweat, without exerting yourself. You have to get there first. Yeah, you're not going to get any of the good plunder if you're, like, the last one off the couch. Early bird gets the worm, damn it. <laughs> you're like, oh, man, I couldn't get into my sneakers this morning. I get no plunder. Whoops. The only thing you have to wear to the plunder is just you just show up naked wearing only your torque and you'll fit right in. Maybe, depending on where you're plundering. I mean, if you're plundering somewhere real cold. I guess that would be <laughs> suboptimal. Situation's not ideal. <laughs> I showed up to Siberian plunder and I'm in my Celtic torque outfit, which is basically no clothes except my torque. But it's a very cool torque. If only my brooch hadn't fallen off and all my clothes with it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not even sure where I was going with this. Where where was I going with this? I mean, essentially, what makes me a little ragey about this is it paints Boudicca's army as being very lazy. Like, they want to have their plunder, but they don't want to work at plundering. Like, number one, I'm not an approver of plundering or pillaging or any of those things. We don't approve of plunder here on this podcast. We do have to say that every so often. Because <laughs> sometimes it might sound like we are approving, but we're not. We do not approve. We frown on plunder, frown aggressively on it. Or we would if it wouldn't give us frown lines. So instead, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> it, it would give us frown lines. So actually what we do is we maintain a very smooth face of disapproval. Exactly. We've hit that point in our 30s. That's absolutely true. Okay. So let's break down the rest of what we've read here. When Boudicca's army reached Verulamium, they ignored the well-defended forts and garrison posts and made straight for the wealthy, relatively undefended areas of the city. They slaughtered anyone who hadn't fled or anyone they met on the road who was too slow in fleeing. So essentially me. <laughs> or me. Us. Yeah. We're just like, maybe we'll just see what the army looks. Oh, fuck. <laughs> wrong, wrong move. Bad call. So they took no prisoners. They sold no one into slavery. They just immediately killed anyone they came across. And at this point, Tacitus is telling us that close to 70,000 people have been killed by Boudicca's army. But... As we discussed last week, archaeology has yet to find these bodies. There is a myriad of reasons why that could be, which we talked about last week. But I do think 70,000 is probably grossly inflated. The town was razed to the ground, it was burnt down, and it suffered the same fate as Camelodunum and Londinium. You notice how he mentions the cross, like Boudicca's army was crucifying people? That's more of a Roman punishment, right? Well... It's very tricky. I'm of two minds here. Yeah, crucifixion would have been a Roman punishment. Remember in our first episode when we talked about Boudicca, we talked about how she was beaten so badly, maybe even scourged, which was a precursor to crucifixion. So it's possible that if Boudicca may have, like, crucified people as a way to kind of give a fuck you to the Romans. I could see that. That's possible. Possible. But, like, that is not a normal way in which Britannic people would have killed someone like the cross is very much about roman punishment right it's more the impaling and the boob eating i don't think they were doing the boob eating definitely impaling but not boob eating <laughs> no we draw a line at boob eating which we talked about in our last episode but yeah if she was doing that that was definitely a statement to the romans and to anyone who collaborated with the romans so that's what tacitus tells us but here is an interesting counter vanessa Colingridge tells us quote the most striking difference between the remains from Verulamium and the other sack towns is that here not a single hoard of coins has been found, nor has any grain been discovered. This can only point to one thing, that the population had time to make a thorough evacuation of the town and left nothing of real value to the advancing rebels. If nothing else, that would have left the Catavolani with some small sense of satisfaction over their old rivals. So what does this mean? Possibly that most of the Catavolani had a chance to escape with their wealth and lives, which would have been a blow to Boudicca's army. I mean, the theory is that everybody else did too, but maybe they didn't. We don't know. But if everybody managed to get out of Verulamium alive and also with their wealth, that would have been kind of a morale problem for Boudicca's army because sacking Verulamium was a matter of pride. If Boudicca's army turned up and found nothing there of value and no one there to slaughter, I mean, where's the party? We were promised a party. We were promised a party and we're not getting a party and this is deeply unfortunate. We exerted ourselves expecting some plunder at the end of it. We're bummed and we're blaming Boudicca. I mean, it could have meant some real problems for her. 
We don't know much about the makeup of Boudicca's army. We know that it was made up of many different tribes with their own leaders who would have been difficult to unite and control. I mean, we've seen other tribal leaders like Vercingetorix in this situation, and it's like herding cats. Tribes who formed Boudicca's war council, and we don't have like, we don't have an inside view of what was going on in Boudicca's war council or, you know, how much dissent she was dealing with. However, much like Spartacus's army, Vercingetorix's army, Pompey's army, any of these guys, it's possible that there was infighting and dissent. And like Spartacus's army and Vercingetorix's army, many of these other, you know, rebel armies that we have studied, this force had been put together very quickly. These weren't battle-hardened warriors. So Boudicca's army might have had some experienced warriors, but the bulk of her forces would have been made up of those who weren't familiar with taking on the might of a disciplined and organized Roman legion. Her army was made up of the losers in those battles. So far, Boudicca's forces had gotten lucky and been able to quickly overwhelm and destroy the small resistance that Rome had put up. But that was all about to change. Because while Boudicca's army had been sacking Verulamium, Paulinus had been regrouping. He'd been plotting where to lure Boudicca's forces into their final battle. Vanessa Collingridge explains, quote, Few details are known of the movements of both armies between the sacking of Aerolamium and the final battle. Even less is known about the location of where they met. Arguments about the actual site abound, from Surrey to Birmingham to Towchester. But what is almost certain is that Paulinus would have tried to keep as many details as possible on his terms, not Boudicca's. And in many ways, he still had some advantages on his side. He would have known that her numbers totally outstripped his own, but her army was untrained. So he had to use skill to outwit the greater army. He would also have realized that his strength lay in forcing the British into a pitched battle that was fought at a time and in a place and manner that he could control. He might also have guessed that his local knowledge could well have been better than hers, for the Iceni had generally stayed within their tribal lands over in the Far East. He also had the benefit of having spent at least three seasons fighting in the hilly areas of Western Britannia, so his men not only had the experience, he knew how to pick an advantageous site for battle. So as Boudicca and her army moved west, the landscape changed. No longer was this the familiar fields and hills and swampy area, marshy areas of East England. Now her forces were out of their territory and comfort zone. They did not know this terrain as well as their ancestral land. And for the first time, Boudicca and her massive army were at a real disadvantage. While they could and did, I'm sure, send out scouts to find out more about the lay of the land, they also knew that they were heading into Roman-controlled territory. The reality was that Boudicca had a real chance of turning this small local uprising into a major conflagration that kicked the Romans out of Britain for good, but only if they could gather more allies. Maybe Boudicca hoped to reach the Roman allied tribes of Cardamandua or Cogodumnus and turn them to their side. It's doubtful, as Boudicca's army weren't fans of Roman collaborators. I mean, I think that's unlikely. Totally, but you never know. Like, we don't know what Boudicca was thinking because nobody wrote it down. Right. But if Boudicca had been successful in turning one of these Roman allied British tribes to her cause, the final battle would have gone very differently. Or perhaps Boudicca's plan had been to make connections with the Druid uprising to the west and the freedom fighters in Wales, still battling Roman forces. But to get to them, Boudicca's army would have had to move fast through unfamiliar Roman-controlled territory, about 280 miles or so of Roman-controlled territory. 
If Boudicca's army was faster moving and more experienced, maybe they could have pulled it off. But they weren't. The pace of Boudicca's army and her epic baggage train made up of women, children, and non-combatants would prove to be her downfall. Paulinus ultimately got to choose the battlefield for the final showdown along an ancient road called Watling Street. Watling Street was originally a broad, grassy lane that had been used for centuries by pre-Roman Britons. It led all the way from Richborough near Kent on the English Channel down to a naturally shallow crossing place on the Thames near a place called Thorny Island. From there, it shot up north all the way to Hadrian's Wall and beyond to northern Scotland, Pictish territory, an offshoot veered west to northern Wales. And I think this started its life as an, like an ancient droving path, like where they were like droving cattle and stuff. Really? I kind of thought it was an ancient like Neolithic trade route. I feel like I read somewhere it was a droving, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, that would explain why it was so wide. When the Romans came, they paved parts of Watling Street and built a number of important ports along the English Channel section of its route. They built Londinium at the narrowest section of the Thames, where Watling Street crossed the river. From Londinium... Watling Street traveled north toward Verulamium. They actually took this road that was like an Iron Age ancient route, the Romans did, and um, rerouted it through Verulamium because it was that important of a road. Well, but also that's how important Verulamium was. That's how important it was to their trade. That's how important an ally they were. And that's also why they pissed off Boudicca and the Trinovanti so much. Yeah. So in Boudicca's time, the section of road connecting Londinium to Verulamium had been widened by the Romans and paved with gravel. Historians aren't sure exactly where Boudicca's army met with Paulinus, but it was somewhere along this road. The Battle of Watling Street would prove to be the last great uprising of the British tribes. Tacitus explains how Paulinus chose his battlefield. Quote, Paulinus had already the 14th Legion, with a detachment of the 20th and auxiliaries from the nearest stations, altogether some 10,000 armed men, when he prepared to abandon delay and contest a pitched battle. He chose a position approached by a narrow defile and secured in the rear by a wood, first satisfying himself that there was no trace of an enemy except in his front and that the plain there was devoid of cover and allowed no suspicion of an ambuscade, which I think is an ambush. The legionaries were posted in serried ranks, the light-armed troops on either side, and the cavalry massed on the extreme wings. Okay, so let's pause for a second and take a closer look at this. You know I love parsing out these ancient battles. Jenny loves her military history. Military history is, like, my least favorite thing. I don't know why I chose to cover, like, Spartacus's revolution and Boudicca's revolution when I don't like battles. But I am so grateful that I have Jenny here to help make sure that we get the most out of every battle. And she's given me a new love and appreciation for battles. I hope I've taught you to love them a little bit, because they're awfully fun. You have. So Paulinus decided that the best way to effectively face Boudicca's army was in this narrow, sort of a chasm, with a wood at the rear. So this would mean that Boudicca's superior numbers would basically have to march into a tunnel. What he's basically doing is removing the advantage of numbers that Boudicca has. He's making them march into this narrow choke point 
where Boudicca's warriors, who were less experienced and less well-armed, would have to face the more experienced Roman troops more one-on-one. And this is where the Romans could use their more highly trained legionaries to pick off the warriors. The position was perfect for a number of reasons. It wouldn't allow Boudicca's army to get around and attack Paulinus's forces from behind, because there's that wood. She couldn't use her superior numbers against him because it forced all her army into this narrow choke point. And it also limited the space that each individual warrior had to fight, which naturally favored the Romans in the way that they were armed. The Romans were really well-armed and well-trained for fighting at close quarters. And Boudicca's army, they were like Celtic warrior poets. And they all needed a lot of space to swing their big broadswords, like their big Celtic broadswords and do their warrior feats. Yeah, those salmon leaps. You cannot salmon leap in a close quarter fight. I think Cucullin would back us up on that. He would. Oh, and another problem, she couldn't use her war chariots. You remember, the Britons used war chariots back then. There's this iconic image of Boudicca riding up and down her army in a war chariot, which we're going to talk about. War chariots at this point, even in the Celtic world, were old tech, but the Britons were one of the few cultures still using them. But in this narrow space, the war chariots really had no room to maneuver. Boudicca's army, they really needed a wide open space where they could outmaneuver the Romans, overrun them with their sheer volume, use their war chariots and their warrior feats and their giant broadswords, and find a way to swamp the Romans on all sides. But the layout of the land really did not work in her favor here. Yeah, so Boudicca led her army onto the field, not fully understanding her terrain. Or maybe understanding it, but knowing that she had no other choice at this point. Exactly. And I'm using this quote that Tacitus gives Boudicca. It's absolutely epic. It's this pre-battle speech. The version of it I'm using comes from Vanessa Collingridge's book, Boudicca. I'm not sure if she translated it or who the translator is, but I just want to give that shout out because it's a really clear translation to what is otherwise quite a confusing speech. So here we go. Quote, Boudicca and her chariot with her daughters in front of her rode up to tribe after tribe arguing that it was perfectly normal for Britons to fight under women leaders. Now this is Boudicca speaking, quote, within a quote, but now it is not as a woman descended from illustrious ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging my lost freedom, my lashed body, the outraged honor of my daughters. Roman greed has developed to such an extent that not even our persons, Not even our age or our virginity are left unpolluted. But heaven is on the side of just vengeance. One legion which dared to fight has been destroyed. The rest are cowering in their camps or anxiously seeking a means of escape. They will not stand even din and shout of so many thousands, let alone our attack and our weapons. If you balance the strength of our armies and the reasons for this war, then you must conquer or die. This is a woman's decision. As for men, they can live and become slaves. Huh, what does that mean, that last line? Well, I think what she's saying here is like, for women, really the only option here is conquer or die. I can see how she's talking about, to the Romans, not even our bodies are sacrosanct. Like They just use women's bodies like just another resource. You know, it's absolutely true that men can also be raped and also have no bodily autonomy and slavery. The situation may have been a lot worse for women just in terms of rape. That may be what she's saying. We definitely can't say that for sure. I think one of the things to also remember about this here that's very important is in this society and with Boudicca being a queen, really the only option for her is conquer or die. 
Under Roman rule, women did not have the same rights that they had in the Britonic tribes. You don't see women being queens. You don't see women with an autonomy leading their people the way you see Boudicca or Cartamandua or other Iron Age British warrior queens. Maybe by saying this is a woman's decision, she's also saying this is my decision. And if you disagree with it, you can live and become slaves. Exactly. You can go run right over to Polinus and say, Hi, Polinus! I don't want to fight anymore! See how that goes for you. Exactly. So, this speech is, of course, apocryphal. It was something that Tacitus made up to tell a better story. You know, remember, these are all said aloud and read to people, and none of this is exactly what she would have said. But it's still a really incredible speech and a fascinating one. And ironically, or maybe on on purpose, it's much better than the very blunt and sort of boring speech that Polinus has given, which I didn't even bother repeating because it is quite boring. Boudicca is filled with passion. She rides her war chariot up and down the lines of her warriors, like the Morrigan, like Androste, a goddess made flesh and blood, stalking the battleground with her hand-picked fighters, her gorgeous ginger hair just waving in the breeze. I mean, allegedly. You can just imagine how her people must have felt listening to their queen give them a rousing speech about how there were no options except victory or death. And in my mind, it's very similar to that moment that we had last season where Spartacus slaughtered his prized horse before battle to show his soldiers that they were all equal and the only horse he'd need he could claim from the Romans' dead cavalry soldiers. And of course, if he fell, he wasn't going to need a horse anyway. But if he died, he would be as a member of his own infantry. He was not above them. They were all equal. Spartacus trained that horse by hand. I don't think he would have just killed his horse. I'm sorry. Well, and as we've talked about many times, Thracians were horse lords. That's not how they would have treated a horse. We hope so. I mean, we're projecting a lot. We're projecting a lot, and that's fine. I'm allowed to have feels about Spartacus. I have feels about Spartacus, and my feels about Spartacus are that he was not down for animal cruelty. Yeah, I have feels about Boudicca, and it's okay. It doesn't mean I'm right. It's very complicated. We have complicated feelings. So the difference is that Boudicca rode into battle on a chariot as a queen. She was visible. She wanted Paulinus to be able to see her. She wanted the Romans to know that a woman was leading such a massive force into battle because it was a giant fuck you. She was leading a force that was loud enough to make the earth shake when they charged, whose songs and battle cries would haunt the battleground forever. If only things had gone a different way. If only Boudicca and her advisors had been more experienced in dealing with their cunning Roman foes. There are a million if-onlys we could lay out for you, but sadly, Boudicca and her rebellion were moments away from destruction. Tacitus tells us that the battle went down like this. Quote, With such alacrity had Paulinus's veteran troops, with a long experience of battle, prepared themselves in the moment to hurl the pilum, that Paulinus, without a doubt of the issue, gave the signal to engage. At first, the legionaries stood motionless, keeping to the defile as a natural protection. Then, when the closer advance of the enemy had enabled them to exhaust their missiles with certitude of aim, they dashed forward in a wedge-like formation. The auxiliaries charged in the same style, and the cavalry, with lances extended, broke away through any parties of resolute men whom they encountered. The remainder took to flight, although escape was difficult as the cordon of wagons had blocked the outlets. The troops gave no quarter even to the women. The baggage animals themselves had been speared and added to the pile of bodies. 
The glory won in the course of the day was remarkable and equal to that of our older victories, for, by some accounts, little less than 80,000 Britons fell, at a cost of some 400 Romans killed and not a much greater number of wounded. So let's break this down. Boudicca's army charged into battle. It must have been a riotous cacophony of horns and songs and battle cries and just the hills shaking all around them. The Britons would have been fighting in their tribal gear, and some possibly went into battle naked with their torques. Possibly because they lost their cloaks and their brooches because it's easy to lose a brooch. You just love that fact I told you. They weren't just like boldly going into battle naked with their torque. No, they had suffered a disastrous wardrobe malfunction and it was very embarrassing for everyone. But here they are. So they would have been flying free without uniform weapons or armor and with a strategy that was much less defined than their Roman oppressors. Their strategy appears to be full steam ahead, maybe letting it all fly free. The Romans, on the other hand, knew they had to hold the line, draw out as much of Boudicca's forces as possible, and then use Boudicca's baggage train and the woods at the back of the army to effectively trap them in place. When the battle turned, when Boudicca and her army knew that they had been caught in a trap, you can only imagine the horror and shock. Here's what came next. Paulinus's men held the line and pressed forward. Boudicca's army fled in the opposite direction, but they were driven up against their own baggage train, which had been bringing up the rear, sheltering their non-combatant women and children. The Romans ground Boudicca's army up against the wagons of the baggage train, which quickly became a wall of overturned wagons and slaughtered bodies of pack animals and non-combatants. Yeah, because the Romans were making a point of killing the pack animals and the non-combatants to make that wall. So Paulinus slaughtered all the men, women, and children on the field and the pack animals and basically everything moving. Random squirrels, bunnies. Red squirrels. At this point in time, they would have been native British red squirrels, not the gray squirrels that you have, which are an invasive species, which came from, I believe, the Americas. But you would have had red squirrels. Sheeps. Sheepsies. Different kinds of rabbits and hares and bunnies. Anything caught alive on this battlefield got speared by the Romans. They were not holding back. But not the scribbles. They just ran pretty quickly. The scribbles? Squirrels. My husband and I call them scribbles. The scribbles. I just, you know what? <laughs> Is it weird that Glenn and I call squirrels scribbles? <laughs> it's just so weird. I just think it's funny. <laughs> it's weird, Jen. It's weird. <laughs> You're so uncomfortable. It's like me when we talk about nakedness. I love it. <laughs> can we move on? <laughs> we can do whatever you want, babe. <laughs> Tacitus tells us that 80,000 Britons died compared to only 400 Roman casualties. These numbers on both sides are clearly exaggerated. You can't believe those numbers. Like, number one, a round number is always a lie. And number two, like, that ratio just doesn't work out. It's likely that Boudicca's army did experience huge losses, but if she had an army of 230,000, where were the rest of her people? 80,000 was only a fraction of her forces, right? Yeah, because according to Dio, as we said at the beginning of this episode, it was 230,000. Where are the rest? 230,000 minus 80,000 is like 150,000? 170? I'm not sure. We're bad at math over here. Over 100,000 have just disappeared into the woods. 
After the victory at Watling Street, Paulinus went on a bloody bender all across Britain. He replenished his troops with auxiliaries from Germania and kept them in the field, living out of tents throughout the winter instead of retiring to a more comfortable winter camp. It would have been cold and muddy and fucking miserable. As someone who's just lived through a cold, muddy, and fucking miserable British winter in, in the south of England, I can attest to this, and I didn't live outdoors. Yeah, and there were two reasons why Paulinus needed to torture his troops by making them live in tents in the wintertime in Britain. To send a message that Romans were actually, in fact, hardy enough to survive the harsh winters because Boudicca had given this whole speech in our last episode about how the Romans were completely undone by the harsh winters. It really touched a nerve. Again, this is a according to the ancient writers. Yeah, and to foster a certain amount of hatred amongst the troops. Paulinus wanted his army to blame the British tribes for their conditions and resent them for having to live in tents. That's what he wanted. He wanted them to be good and mad. The troops were now ready for the next phase of Paulinus's plan. Just operation to more genocide to the native people of a country by Romans. So, according to Vanessa Collingridge, quote, Paulinus's soldiers would have had plenty of time to exercise their hatred as the troops swept through the British countryside seeking retribution for the uprising, setting fire to farmsteads and food stores, which is how they kept warm because it was winter and they had to live in tents, and putting the local tribespeople to the sword. It was not enough of a defense merely not to have taken part to the Romans that still made you complicit in the revolt, which is kind of like Boudicca's attitude as well. Look, Boudicca was on to something. If you had sided with her and joined with her, you would have known that the Romans couldn't do this to you ever again. But you didn't listen. You made your beds, kids. Now you have to lie in them. That is what Boudicca's saying from beyond the grave right now. Only the client kingdoms, such as those of Cogadumnus and Cardamagua, escaped the widespread retribution, for they had been amongst the few who had remained steadfast in their loyalty. Yeah, and Vanessa Collingridge goes on to explain that, quote, For the losers, the devastation on the battlefield was nothing compared to that which was now wrought across the remainder of the province, and nowhere more so than in the lands of the Iceni and the Trinovantes. All vestiges of our old friend Postasaurus's client kingdom were systematically stripped away. His lands and those of Boudicca were now under direct and unforgiving military control. Forts were built all over East Anglia in the aftermath of the uprising, as much to serve as commanding iconography of the new foreign rule as to impose its will. The Iceni were either killed forced out of their homes, or sold into slavery in a genocidal revenge that devastated an entire people. So at this point, Paulinus was about as popular with the native Britons as a turd sandwich. And when a new procurator called Julius Classicanus, it's classic anus. It's another anus name. And we're so mature. <laughs> it has not escaped my notice that most of the Roman men involved in Boudicca's stories had names that involved the word anus. It's true. Anyway, when this new procurator took over, he sparked a feud with Paulinus. Classic anus was a Celt with a Roman name, which meant he probably had Roman citizenship. And he had no love for Paulinus. I mean, can't possibly think why that might be. I don't think even Paulinus's mom had any love for Paulinus at this point. Anyway, Classicinus taught... What's that name, Jen? What's that name? <laughs> Classicinus. Classicinus. Classicinus is what I'm calling him. Classicinus talked to the local Britons. He told them, look, just wait this guy out. He's going to be withdrawn soon, and a new governor will come in, 
And he can't possibly be this bad. All you gotta do, just wait this guy out. I mean, he could be worse. Have you heard of Paulus the Chain? Yeah, Paulus the Chain wasn't born for a while yet. Don't scare the kids. That's true, but I'm just saying, theoretically, it could be worse. I mean, yeah, they don't know that. And also, like, I'm kind of guessing that, like, classic anus (laughs) is angling to be governor himself. (laughs) Maybe so. So what happened here was kind of dueling dispatches. Classic anus, as the kids like to say would write to Rome telling them how awful Paulinus was doing. And at the same time, Paulinus was writing back saying the opposite. Eventually, the emperor, Nero, had enough and realized that Paulinus's presence in the colony was very destabilizing and was causing more problems than solutions. I just need you to bring me solutions, Paulinus, not problems. That's what Nero said. It's said that Nero was so discouraged with how the Boudicca rebellion had turned out that he almost pulled out his troops and abandoned the province of Britain entirely. Instead, Nero recalled Paulinus to Rome, and another governor took over. According to Tacitus, quote, Paulinus was ordered, under pretense that the war was still in being, to transfer his army to Petronius Terpilianus. So many anuses in the story. But only one classic one. Petronius Terpilianus, <laughs> <laughs> who by now had laid down his consulate. The newcomer abstained from provoking the enemy, was not challenged himself, and conferred on the spiritless inaction the honorable name of peace. I mean, I guess you could call peace spiritless inaction, like if you want to be a jerk about it. So basically, Paulinus' punitive measures were too extreme even for neckbeard Nero. We don't know exactly what those punitive measures were. We do not have the details, but they were too extreme for Nero. We can guess. It involves a lot of destabilization, crucifixion, and taking out a lot of his aggression on the native peoples. Anyway, Nero recalled Paulinus and replaced him with Terpilianus. <laughs> and Terpilianus was a guy more willing to keep the peace. But Paulinus was not disgraced. He got to be consul in 66 AD, about six years later. And in 69 AD, Nero died and Rome descended into a year of instability and chaos, later called the Year of the Four Emperors. During that time, Galba took over from Nero, only to be immediately assassinated by his own Praetorian guard, assisted by a Roman noble named Otho, who became emperor in turn. Paulinus emerged as one of Otho's top generals and military advisors. But like so many people in the year of the four emperors, Paulinus backed the wrong horse. He was eventually captured in battle with Vitellius, Otho's successor. Paulinus tried to convince Vitellius He'd been on his side all along, seriously, dude, giving Otho bad advice so Otho would lose all his battles. Like, I'm not a bad general. I'm just, like, on your side but behind enemy lines. Yeah, and actually Otho did ignore Paulinus's advice a lot, so I don't know. He's just like, look at how bad this guy does at battles. Clearly, clearly I must be fucking him up on purpose. Exactly. So we're not sure if Vitellius believed what Paulinus was trying to sell him or what happened to him after that. Nobody knows how he died. So that is what happened to Paulinus. But what happened to Boudicca after the Battle of Watling Street? Tacitus and Dio both tell us that once she realized the battle was lost, she drank poison in a move very similar to Cleopatra's death by asp. That poetic death was kind of a trope in Roman history. It serves to tell Roman readers that foreign queens will never win against the might of Rome, that in the end, they always take their own lives. 
It's possible that Boudicca did take her own life after the battle was lost. She would have known that if the Romans had captured her, she would have wished for death on the battlefield. Walking in a triumph or being crucified would have been infinitely worse than death in battle for the proud warrior queen. Her death being made a form of amusement and aggrandizement for her oppressor would have been a great insult to her honor. Taking her own life would have seemed like a more dignified alternative. That's our thought, at least. However, it's also likely that Boudicca died on the battlefield. If she died early in the battle, perhaps her lack of leadership is why her people walk straight into Polinus's trap. We'll never know. But I wanted to stop for a minute here in the episode before we talk about where Boudicca might be buried in the end of Boudicca and talk a little bit about the big Boudicca versus the little Boudicca. So one of the really interesting things that I noticed when I was researching Boudicca is a lot of people came out quite quickly to tell me, like, particularly on social media, oh, Boudicca is so passionate, but no strategy. You know, if only Boudicca had more strategy. And we tend to see people like Vercingetorix or Spartacus, who are written about by the ancient sources, as having a lot of strategy and having a lot of thought behind what they're doing. And we look at their motives for how their rebellions work. But we don't see that with Boudicca. What we see with Boudicca is the reason for why she revolts. And the reason she revolts has a lot to do with personal outrage and honor against her and her tribe. And When Jenny and I were working on this series, I felt really strongly that it was so important that in addition to talking about the outrage and the dishonor done to Boudicca and her community and her daughters, we also tried to look a little bit at the strategy. So like we talked about in the Spartacus series, the big Spartacus, which is, you know, the overarching like free all the slaves and the symbol of a revolution versus the small Spartacus, the guy who has a reason to want to be out of slavery for him and potentially his wife if she was ever with him we don't know the man versus the symbol of the man and i wanted to take a moment right now to talk about Boudicca, the woman the mother the warrior queen versus the symbol of Boudicca. like i'm always going to be a fan of the small spartacus versus the large spartacus i'm always going to be a fan of the person versus the symbol that's just how i'm wired That's the story I find interesting. But I feel like Boudicca isn't usually afforded, at least I haven't seen her, afforded the chance to be big Boudicca. She's always small Boudicca. She's always like reacting to horrible things that the Romans did to her and her family personally. It's never about the bigger picture. And is that gendered? It's absolutely gendered. And it's it's gendered in fact that the people who were writing about her weren't interested in her as a symbol of like an uprising about a larger people. They wanted to make it about one woman against the dishonor for her and her tribe and her daughters. Because to make it about, like, all of her people would be to give her this sort of status and mythicism that why would you afford to a woman in that way? Yeah, and, and they they do afford it to men in that way, even men that, that were enemies of Rome. Like, Vercingetorix gets that treatment, Spartacus gets that treatment, Alaric gets that treatment. And the other thing is the strategy aspect of it. The part of it where people just assumed that Boudicca was all passion and no strategy. Jenna and I had an, a text argument about this, and our arguments over text are just so fun. They're fun for us. I'm not sure they're fun for anyone else. Jen was like, I have to call you. I have to talk this out. This is just not coming through over text, which means she's like, she's like really worked 
job. <laughs> Means I'm getting ready to burn everything down Boudicca style. <laughs> I forget what we were talking about. Like we were talking about how to talk about Boudicca in one paragraph or one part of the episode that Jen had written and that I was editing and she didn't like my edits. You didn't like me presenting her as just passionate and angry and scorching her anger into the earth because she's always presented as all passion and no strategy. And Jenny's point, which is also equally important, is she was flogged. Her daughters were raped. Like, she has a righteous reason to be passionate and to scourge this anger into the earth and to deny that, to deny that fact as a woman, as a survivor, as someone who has gone through that, is to cut out that experience and to invalidate it, which is not something I wanted to do in any way, shape, or form. What I wanted to do and what I was trying to get out of the edit was that she's both. And it's so important that she gets to be both big Boudicca and small Boudicca, because a lot of times we only see her as one. I agree. And I think that, you know, one of the hills that I wanted to die on was like, why don't women get to be angry and also strategic? Like, why does our anger erase our strategy? It shouldn't, you know? And that was the hill that we wound up dying on here. Yeah, we had to stop text fighting because we both were on the same hill and we're like, so we're both dying on the same hill, right? Okay, great. (laughs) Yeah, and I think one thing that is important to point out, and we've pointed it out elsewhere in this episode, is that things that Boudicca did, like burning down the towns the way that she did, were also things that Vercingetorix did. And when he did it, it's called strategy. And when she does it, it's called passion. Part of, you know, as we posited in our cold open, because there is no evidence one way or another, is was Boudicca lighting everything on fire? Was she trying to send a message to the other tribes that there is one way forward and it is everyone aligned with Rome has to go and only all together can we rise and get rid of the oppressors? We'll never know. There's so much of her story that's not recorded because the people recording that story didn't have a a dog in that fight and they weren't interested in it. So we can only kind of think about it and make our own assumptions, which are, you know, ultimately erroneous because we don't know one way or another for sure. We're just writing the fan fiction here. But I'd like to think that Boudicca had strategy and her strategy was literally join us or die. And we bring our own lens and our own prejudices to the story like anyone else would. Her feelings were, there is no peace with the Romans because if you side with them, they will still screw you over. And not only will they screw you over, they will do it in the most awful, public, humiliating, horrible way for you, for your loved ones, for your family. So when you're faced with that injustice, the only thing you can do is rid it from your land like a toxic poison. So, you know, her strategy was burn it all to the ground, burn it out. And we saw it, as Jenny said, with Vercingetorix. We've seen it with many other people. And in those places, it's called strategy. When Boudicca does it, it's just called flailing. So I want to talk now about where we think Boudicca is buried. Here's the thing. We don't know. Some legends say that she's buried beneath Stonehenge. It's extremely unlikely. So unlikely, but like, it's one of those mythic things that like, people are like, Boudicca's buried under Stonehenge. It's like, no, she's not. But okay. They would have found her. I mean, Stonehenge is really picked over. But also, why would she like, it's just, it's not even a place I think she was. But anyway, other theories suggest that she is buried at Boudicca's Mound at Hampstead Heath in London, which is obviously named for her. Although excavations of this mound have not turned up her body, only domestic rubbish from that time period. 
Other theories suggest that she was buried at Peckham Rye in Southwark on the south bank of the Thames in London, or under the platforms of King's Cross Station, like, you know, right over where the one that goes to Hogwarts is. I don't know. But there's no evidence of these theories. This is all just fan fiction. It's possible that we'll never know where Boudicca was laid to rest because she fell on the battlefield and was buried in a mass grave or burned on a pyre or torn apart in the violence of battle. And since we don't actually know the location of the final battle of Watling Street, we might just have to live in speculation and mystery until one day the present catches up to the past and archaeologists unearth an ancient secret. Wherever Boudicca calls her final resting place, we hope that she can hear us almost 2,000 years in the future, singing the songs of her epic battle, letting her live again, riding into righteous war to defend her homeland, her rule, and her people. That's it for this week and for our Boudicca arc. We really hope you've enjoyed it. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl and on Twitter at Ancient History Fangirl. We have a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl, where you can support the podcast and get extra episodes. And we have quite a few extra episodes about the world of Roman Britain and Boudicca's world and kind of deepening and enriching your understanding of this time period from a lot of different angles. And it's really, really great. And if you're just here for the drunken mythology, we've got quite a few episodes with Liv from Myths Baby, where we retell some drunken myths, including that time Jenny and I decided to tell her the entire story of the Hound of Ulster. Sign up at the $10 level and you really get our id. I'm not going to lie. We talked about maybe finding Robin Hood, the fox in the Disney cartoon. Kind of fetch. (laughs) We go in depth. And our our sexual attraction to the cartoon fox. It's awesome. (laughs) And you'll have to join our Patreon to find out more. Right now, Jenny, we have some patrons to thank. Blanket statement. We apologize to anyone whose name we mispronounce. It's probably going to happen. We can't even pronounce Prostegosaurus. Thank you so much to Sean Williams. Sarah Rippey. Juliet Talavera. Kirby Carlson. Emily Reardon. Ashley King. Elizabeth Moreno. William Petty. Helena Waterus, Lauren Voller, Jessica Reeves. Our patrons are the only reason we can keep doing this podcast. It is how Jenny and I are able to keep things afloat. We do one day want to be professional podcasters, and that's only going to happen through ad revenue, through listenerships and review, and new patrons. So if you're able, anything you can give, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your support. Thank you, and we'll see you guys again in two weeks.